Uh, we come to a portion of Scripture which is a dark portion of Scripture uh, and uh, a large portion of Scripture. And there is, I realized this morning and certainly last night, there's not a chance that we're going to get through it all. So I hope it makes sense as we work our way through it. Um, for me, it has been just the, name, the Scripture that I have needed uh, to help me process what's going on in our world right now. And it is a crazy world that we live in, uh, both in our own country in Canada, uh, around the world, certainly over in the Ukraine and what's going on with Russia and Ukraine and uh, rumors of wars that we're hearing in other parts of the nation and certainly natural disasters of all different kinds. And we wonder, how do we process all of this? How do we make sense of it? Uh, How do we have our anxieties um, uh, reduced and our fears uh, dispelled? And coming to a text like this, which is a dark and a difficult text, though, I think we find in it incredible help, uh, a worldview, a way of understanding God and his way in our world that helps us make sense of the world in which we live. And we come to the book of Kings, and just I need to go broad and then come in uh, and narrow with us just a little bit. The, the books of Kings, we have First and Second Kings, uh, cover about uh, 47 chapters in all. And in those 47 chapters, we have about 400 years of history that are recorded in about 50,000 words. That's very succinct um, record of that 400 years. It's the period of time between the death of David and the Babylonian captivity of Judah. And uh, in the middle of that, or in a section of that, we have 20 chapters, which are given to about 75 or 80 years. They are chapters that describe the work of God through the prophets Elijah and Elisha. And when we get um, almost half of the book compressed into uh, 75 or 80 years, it should tell us that something is going on, that God wants us to slow down and reflect on how is he working in the world? Why is he working in the world this way? And so there's this very specific 75, 80 years that um, takes up almost half of the books of First and Second Kings. And we're going to zero in on even a smaller portion of that from uh, chapter 8 to chapter 13 of Second Kings. But we also have to make this jump from uh, almost 2,700 years ago uh, and uh, bring it into our context and how we live, the world in which we live now. We make a journey of almost... 11,000 kilometers, 10,700 to be exact, to go from Babylon, where the book was written, to Parksville, where we live now. And uh, we have uh, a completely different political system, and yet the Word of God is absolutely applicable and helpful for understanding how we make sense in the world in which we live, of the world in which we live. It's helpful to think just a little bit about history, too, as we um, uh, come to this particular text. Um, history is God's story. No matter what historians might tell you, no matter uh, what, where, what direction they come to, history is God's story. The history of the world is all about God acting and working in this world in which we live. He has a plan. Uh, he, is, he is working out that plan. It is a perfect plan, and it is everything in our world is unfolding according to that perfect plan of God. He is the, the one that determines history. He is the one that directs history. He is the one that controls history. And the Bible gives us a 
perspective, not the only perspective, obviously, but gives us the perspective that we need to understand the world in which we live and to make sense of the history of the nations and of people and even of ourselves in this world in which we live. The Bible has movements, and we've talked about these, three or four major movements. There's the movement of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, where God creates this world. And then we have chapter 3, in which we see this incredible conflict that takes place, and sin enters into the world, and, and the world looks like it's turned upside down. And then from Genesis chapter 4 all the way to Revelation uh, chapter 20, we have the story of redemption. We have the work of God to redeem creation. Not only the creation of the material world around us, uh, but also uh, the, the redemption of uh, humankind. And it's God's story of how he works through history, bringing a people back to himself and eventually recreating the world, in which we come to in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth. At the center of this story of God's history is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And it really is the way in which we understand the world. Uh, everything goes back to this text. Everything flows out of this text as we understand what's going on in our day. Where God says after, he, uh, after man and woman have sinned, after uh, Satan has done his thing, uh, he speaks to Satan, Satan in a word of judgment. And he says, I will put enmity... This enmity is a gift of God. He says, I will put enmity between, your, uh, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is sort of the main way in which we are to understand and interpret the events of the world that we live in. Although we might not always be able to identify that enmity, we can be sure that behind the scenes and um, around all that's going on is, is this strife between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. The, that, that is the heart of his history. We understand the world. I hope you understand the world or if you've worked this through a little bit. There are two seeds in our world, only two seeds. There are only two humanities. There are only two families in this world. There is the family of Satan and the seed of Satan. There's the family of God. There are no other alternatives. You either belong to this family or that family. And the history of the world is the history of the conflict between those two peoples or those two families. If you ask me what's gone wrong with the world, I would take you back to Genesis chapter 3, and I would take you back to that conflict that's described in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And so the scripture that we are looking at today is the big picture of the history of the world uh, that God is moving along, but at the center of that is also this conflict between these two seeds, the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. One more thing to just help us understand. It really matters as people of God that we, that we understand God's role in this world. I've described it as his history. I've described the conflict. But to, to wrap our heads around the fact that this world is not a random world. It's not a world that God has wound up and thrown out and is just letting it unwind. And if you were to read these, uh, these four or five chapters and look for evidence of God, it would astound you. It would encourage you. 
It would calm you to know that God is at work in this world in which we live. This, certainly these chapters make it very clear that God exists. It just assumes the existence of God. As I hope every child of God does, we don't assume. We know that God exists. God is real, we say, and that changes everything. But beyond that, we see in here that God knows what goes on in the human heart. We see it specifically when he says through the prophet uh, Elisha to Hazel, I know the evil that is in your heart. God sees into the heart of men and women. In fact, he says, he says Elisha says, God has shown me what is in your heart. We see that God is a hands-on God in the world in which we live. Sometimes directing it clearly by sending this nation against that nation, by raising up this king to do his will through that king to a certain people. And sometimes he's working behind what we see. There is the power of God's word which directs all things in this world. Nothing happens outside of the direct command and will of God. And it's the decrees of God and the word of God and the commands of God and the promises of God. Those are how we know that this world is in control. This is how we know what God is up to because we can read his word and we can see what he says in his word and we can say, aha, God said it, God will bring it to pass. We have in here the balance between grace and judgment. We have grace, which is God's um, riches to us or God's goodness to us, even though we don't deserve it. Judgment is simply getting what we deserve. And we see that uh, woven through this text, particularly on the side of judgment. We have the nature of the world that we live in. There is a material world. There's, uh, there's kings rising, kings falling. There's, there's people dying. There's wars being waged. But behind all of that, there is a spiritual reality that God is the one that is directing all of those things. At the heart of it is an attack on the people of God and uh, the, the new Israel even as we come to understand even the book of Revelation and as it describes the, the world in these last days in which we live and how it is this intense battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of Mary. We have evidence in this text of direct attacks on God and his word and his promises, and we'll see that when we come to chapter 11. And we see in here evidences of the Antichrist, um, capital A, who influences small antichrists. And as John tells us, there have been many antichrists. There will be more to come until the final antichrist rears its ugly head. And so we need to understand that God exists and that God is at work and that history is his and that it's a history of a conflict between two peoples. And so as we come to the text before us, I'm, I'm a little bit not sure how to progress because there's a lot in my head and there's a lot that I want to cover and we're not going to cover it all. So we're just trusting that God will make clear the things that we ought to talk about. We ought to start at least with the preparation of judgment. If you have your Bibles open, open them to 2 Kings uh, chapter uh, 8 and we're going to read just a few verses starting at verse, um, verse 7. And what I want you to understand, and I won't be able to read all the scriptures, but I've provided some of them in the notes and whatnot that you have, but behind all that is going to take place now in chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 are direct words of God. God says that you are to anoint Haziel to Elijah a number of years earlier. You are to anoint Jehu. God says that 
um, God will bring about judgment on Ahab's house, all of his servants, all of those in Ahab's house. That is fulfilled through Jehu as he acts here. God has promised that there will never be one that will not be on the throne of David. And yet we see that in considerable jeopardy in chapter 11. And so behind all that is going on, behind all the judgment, is the fulfillment of God's specific clear words about certain people that he will raise up. And so uh, I would just read to give us a sense of that starting in chapter 8, verse 7, so that we begin at least we get introduced to this section. And again, remember, what's behind and what's in my head is encouragement that God's got this world. That even though it seems like it's a crazy world right now, God has got this world in his hands. Fear not, little flock. And so in, starting at verse 7, now Elijah, Elisha sorry, came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Haziel, take a present with you and go and meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? So Haziel went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camel loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that you will certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Haziel said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. There's that conflict. You will set on fire their fortresses and you will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Haziel said, What is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, what did Elisha say to you? He answered, he told me that you will certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Haziel became king in his place. It's even in that small text, there is so much going on. But God is in control of every single bit of it. He shows Elijah what is going on. He tells Elijah what will happen in the future. He, he tells Elijah what is in the heart of Haziel. And here, Elisha anoints Haziel as God had told Elijah needed to be done. So the word of God is being fulfilled. And this is all in preparation of judgment of another word that God had spoken to the house of Ahab, that all of Ahab's household and all of his servants will be put to death because of the evil that he did. There was no one as evil as Ahab and the sins that he caught Israel to walk in. And there's that conflict again between a king and, and the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman as that conflict is zeroed in on the people of God. And so as you read in, in chapters, uh, rest of chapter 8 in, in verses 16 and on, you see again and again references to Ahab and how people were related to Ahab, and how the king, kings of Judah had aligned themselves with Ahab through marriage, and had brought themselves now also under the judgment of God that was going to fall on the house of Ahab. 
God is keeping his word. God had said in, in 1 Kings chapter 21 that he would punish the house of Ahab. And now he raises up Jehu, who is also to be anointed by Elijah. I hope this is making sense. Back in 1 Kings uh, 19, where God tells Elijah, you shall anoint Jehu. Well, now that is finally fulfilled through Elisha. And he anoints Jehu to be the one to carry out the judgment of his word on the household of Ahab. And so we find that being worked out uh, in these chapters. All of this is preparation for the judgment that will fall on the house of Ahab. One of the things that struck me as I was working through this text, and particularly just what I read, how shocking it is to our senses. But notice Elisha's reaction. He stopped and he stared at Haziel until Haziel looked away. It's like he was looking right into him and into his heart. And then it says, the man of God wept. You know, what's going on there? Why is he weeping? Is this an opportunity for Haziel to repent? To receive grace? He's just been exposed. Will he repent? Will he admit what's in his heart? Or as we see, he completely denies what's in his heart. This was his last opportunity for grace before judgment would come. Then there's the heart of the prophet. Why is he weeping? I think in part he's weeping for the hardness of heart that he sees in Haziel. I think he's weeping because he knows of the, of the things that Haziel is going to do to the people of Israel over the course of the next number of years as he wreaks havoc on them in one attack after another. He weeps because of the judgment of God that comes upon the people of God because of their hard-heartedness. He weeps like God does. God is not overjoyed in judgment. God is not thrilled by the prospect of judgment. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel records the heart of God. Do you think that I'd like to see wicked people buy, die, says God? Of course not. I want them to turn from all their wicked ways and live. Luke records the weeping of Jesus. When he drew near and he saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your salvation. Elisha is a man of God. He has the heart of God for the people, and he weeps. God weeps for those who are hard-hearted and resist his appeals for repentance so that they might find grace. Verses 16 and on to the end of chapter 10 really describe the execution of God's judgment through Jehu on the house of Ahab. And what we need to, one of the things that if we can pull out and just think about in the context even of the world in which we live, the world, word of God is always the catalyst for history. I hope that makes sense to you. In other, in other words, whatever God says, whatever God determines will always take place and that determines the course of history. 
Nothing in history happens outside of the word of God. And we find the plan of God and, and, and the word of God recorded all throughout scriptures, but we know that, in fact, God has a plan for this world. In Revelation chapter 5, he describes a scroll that only the Lamb is able to open. And on that scroll are all the judgments of God, all the plans of God, all the purposes of God, and it's unraveled before us, and we see that plan even now being fulfilled in the world in which we live. Even in Acts chapter 4, when, when all the kings of the world were gathered against his anointed one. They did only what the predetermined plan and purposes of God were to Jesus. And so the word of God is always the catalyst for anything that takes place in our country or in countries around the world. And so in chapters 8 through to 10, the end of 8 through to 10, we see the word of God spoken against the household of Ahab now being worked out in the family and those aligned with Ahab. In chapter 9, when Elisha anoints Heziel, or Jehu, he sends his servant, he says, take the flask and anoint Jehu king over Israel. Loved ones, that is an illustration, that is a reminder of God's work in all of this world. Oh, there might not be a prophet that goes and anoints a particular leader in any particular country in the world, but there is not a single leader anywhere in this world that is there by themselves apart from the appointment of God. Not a single leader. They are all there because God has determined at that time and at that place that individual should be reigning over that group of people. This is what Nebuchadnezzar came to realize. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I bless the Most High, and I praise and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does according to his word among the host of heaven, the invisible world, and among the inhabitants of the earth. All the inhabitants of the earth. No one can say to, stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? There's not a single leader in authority, in the past, in the present, or in the future, who is not there by the expressed will and word of God. And so Jehu was anointed king. It's easy to fear. It's easy to be anxious. It's easy to feel the weight of the world around us. This has been a tumultuous week. For Canadians, for Ukrainians, for Russians, for people all around the world. And were it not for the word of God, I would remain anxious and fearful. But because of the word of God and the way that it's described in these texts, we have incredible encouragement that this world is not out of control, that God is in control of this world. Fear not, little flock. Come to chapter 11. And it's a fascinating passage of Scripture. It's kind of one of those passages of Scripture that we would treat like a genealogy. Some of you are familiar with genealogies and what happens when you come to genealogies. You read the first two or three names and then you, you skip down five or six and you skip down another 20 and before you know it, you're in Luke chapter 2. 
Sometimes we can do that through the history books of kings and chronicles. We, oh, I've heard this. Oh, this is kind of boring. Oh, this king, that king, this marriage, that marriage. They did evil. They did good, blah, blah, blah. And we move on. Boy, we miss a ton of what God wants to teach us and encourage us with when we do that. Second Kings chapter 11 is a profound text of Scripture. In this particular text of Scripture, it's like the curtain of history is peeled back on a particular time in our world. It's illustrative of what is going on all the time in our world in which we live. But in this particular um, instance, we get to focus on how God is working, what's going on, how God is directing, and from that extrapolate out the same God at work in our world today in the things that we face. Here is a snapshot of the world and its troubles. Here is a snapshot of Genesis chapter 3 being worked out on the, on the stage of the world. It's the same thing that's reiterated in Psalm 2. It's the same thing that's reiterated in Acts chapter 4. It's the same thing that's described in Revelation 12 as Satan is mad and angry and he has gone off to make war with the saints. That is the, that is the way to understand the world. It is a battle between the seed of, uh, of Satan and the seed of the woman. That is the way we understand the world. It's not always evident. It's not always clear. But that is always what is going on is the people of God are under assault. As Paul describes in, Revel in Ephesians 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Some of you might say, Paul, you're being a little bit melodramatic here now, aren't you? You're smart people. You work it out for yourself. You go home after this and you read these chapters and See if what I say is not so. Let's just read the first three verses of chapter 11. There's more, but I think these first three verses are the key ones. Now, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of, the king of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaz. See, and then you just want to quit, right? Oh, I can't pronounce those names. What do I got? So come back with me. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid from Athaliah, so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years hidden in the house of the Lord, while Athaliah ruled over the land. It's not difficult. It's not, it's, we're not overstating the case here when we say the plan and the purposes of God hang in the balance here. It's like the dark side of the battle that's described in Genesis 3.15 has, has seen its opportunity and is about to pounce here. The promise of God to the house of David is in extraordinary jeopardy. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, God promises to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
It seems like God's promise to David is about to be dealt a death blow. There is an eeriness about these verses. It's this eeriness that all of a sudden we, we, we think that the, the promise of Genesis 3.15 is about to reverse and it's Satan that is going to crush the head of the seed of the woman. It's like Antichrist has sort of hovered by uh, floating around the world in the invisible realms and he's hovered by and all of a sudden he's seen an opportunity. He says, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. And he puts his finger on Athalia. Remember who Athalia is, loved ones. Athalia is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. She has Jezebel's blood coursing through her veins. She has a hatred for the word of God and the people of God as Jezebel had and her father had. And what she represents is the annihilation of the worship of God and the word of God as Ahab and Jezebel had sought to do amongst the people of Israel. So she proceeds to take her wrath out on the royal heirs by annihilating them. But for Jehoshaphat, who you might ask? Jehoshaphat. As one individual said, she is the woman who saved Christmas. She secretly rescues Joas, son of Ahaziah, from the king's sons who were being put to death and put him and his nurse in a bedroom where she was hidden from the murderous rampage of Athalia for six years. Just unpack this just a little bit. Everything, everything depends on the promise that God had made to David hundreds of years earlier, that the Davidic line would never fail, that eventually there would be a final king, a messianic king, an eternal king, the son of God who would reign forever and ever and ever, and the promise of God would be fulfilled. And we know who that king is, right? That king is Jesus. Until then, it was all-out war to destroy the line and to, secure the, and to secure an alternate source of power. The promise was not a secret. It was recorded. God had made the promise publicly, and it was recorded publicly. It was made openly. And it was exposed on this little baby boy, Johash. He was threatened. Doesn't this remind us of Jesus when he was born and the hatred of Herod towards Jesus who commanded every boy two years and under to be killed so that he could kill the messianic king? So Athalia vents her wrath on the seed of the woman you know, there, there is an, an, an instinctive hatred, and this is not overstating the case. There is an instinctive hatred that rulers of this age have for Christ's kingdom. It's the history of the world. It always has been. It always will be until Christ comes back. There is hostility to the kingdom of God and the people of God that drives them. It's a hostility that we see worked out in Revelation uh, all the book of Revelation, it's a hostility that we see worked out in, particularly in Daniel chapter 7. 
Sometimes, as is the case here in this particular time that is described in 2 Kings, they are so successful that God's cause and people may seem on the verge of extinction. John is very clear. He says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Children, it's the last hour, as you have heard. The Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. In this particular instance, how do you spell Antichrist? A-T-H-A-L-I-A-H. Athalia. She's not the first. She won't be the last. You even have to just go back a few years earlier to her father, Ahab, who also set about to destroy the people of God, the word of God. There are antichrists all through history, and we need to recognize that, loved ones. Don't say to yourselves, I don't think you can ever get worse. Texts like, text like this in Matthew chapter 24 in the book of Revelation would argue, yes, they can. There will be wars and rumors of wars, and that's just the beginning. Satan is raging, evil is flourishing, but don't despair, don't lose heart. As Christ spoke to the church in Pergamum, so he speaks to us today, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. God's got this. He knows what's going on. His word will prevail. Notice again, as we come back to this text, the significance of God's unsung servants. This one is named Jehoshaphat. She's the daughter of the king and the wife of a priest. But how many of you knew her name before this morning? Had you ever heard of Jehoshaphat? The wonderful reality is in the scriptures that wherever Antichrist is, Christ always has his faithful servants. He always has people who can thwart the work of Antichrist. Just as Elijah thwarted the work of Antichrist in Ahab's days, so Jehoshaphat thwarts the work of Antichrist in Joash's days. Yahweh's promise to David was one infant away from proving false and falling to the ground. Jehoshaphat is the human agent that's responsible for preserving the kingdom of God. If it wasn't for her, there wouldn't be any Christmas. See, do you see how strategic her act was? That act of that one woman? Yahweh's promise hung by a frazzled thread, and she prevented it from snapping. Never ever think that your role in the world is insignificant. Never ever think that where God has placed you doesn't matter. Never think that the school that you go to, the home that you are part of, the neighborhood that you live in, the children that you have, the spouse that you are married, that it doesn't really matter. Oh, we might not ever have a role like Jehoshaphat did, but God always has us where he wants us to serve his purposes and fulfill his kingdom purposes. Who knows why God has us where we are? Who knows what God may need from us at a specific time in history for the purposes of his kingdom? He doesn't need powerful people. He doesn't need prominent people. Paul puts it in perspective when he says to the church, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the 
to shame the strong. Be in awe of the ways of God. He had just the servant he wanted in just the right place at the right time. And as one person wrote, this is where we should all stand and sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom gutsy women come. I love that phrase. One final observation, though, about the kingdom of God from this text. And it's true of what's happening in Canada. It's true of what's happening in the Ukraine. It's true of what's happening anywhere in the world. Live in confidence that the invisible kingdom of God is already here, but one day it will be seen. When Jesus was before the leaders, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Do you notice the two kingdoms that are described in chapter 11 here, in verse 3? Two kingdoms existing side by side, breathing the same air. There is the invisible reign of the illegitimate kingdom. Athalia ruling over Israel. And then there's the secret existence of the true kingdom. Joash, hidden away in a room with his nurse. The true king is there behind the scenes and the pretender doesn't have a clue. Loved ones know that today. That no matter what is going on in the world, no matter what is going on in your world, no matter what pressures you're facing, no matter how evil it is and how dark it is, there is an invisible kingdom of God with the true king on the throne reigning. And that kingdom will always prevail. Things are not as they seem, or things are not only as they seem. Athalia is ruling, and she never imagines that there's a little boy hidden away in a room that will destroy her. I've been trying to make this clear throughout our time in uh, Kings that God has his invisible servants everywhere. Unnamed servants maybe is a better way of putting it. He's got the unnamed little girl or young woman that was taken captive that is in Naaman's house that says to Naaman, you need to go and see the prophet. He has the unnamed servants that are part of Naaman's uh, retinue that say to him, no, calm down, calm down. You, You need to listen to the voice of the prophet. We have the unnamed servants in the house of uh, the king of Israel who said, no, 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 this isn't a trick. This isn't a plan. Let's just go test the waters and see why the army of Syria is not there. We can go to Philippians chapter 4 verse 22 where it says, those who are among Caesar's household who have the household of faith. Here is the most prominent um, household in all of the world. Caesar's household. And in Caesar's household is the invisible household of faith. God's people that God has raised up and placed to influence and eventually supplant that kingdom. As another one wrote, there's a gospel sneakiness about the gospel and the kingdom of God. I I hope I've given you at least a little sense of why my heart and my head were so encouraged this past week as I went through this text, these four or five chapters, how it anchored me, how it stabilized me, 
how it reminded me that God is at work, that God always wins, that God's word always prevails, and that though there might be kings and queens in this world, and there might be raging and battles and fighting, there is the messianic king. There is Jesus on the throne, and he is reigning now, as we saw just a few weeks ago before Christmas, and he is bringing all things under his feet that he will hand them over to God. This world is not spinning out of control, loved ones. There is a throne and it's occupied. This is what gives us courage. This is what calms our fears. This is what makes us able to resist those that try and control us or influence us. Knowing that there is a legitimate king on the throne of this universe, reigning keeps us sane, safe, and unafraid. Fear not, little flock. Father, we thank you for your word today. It's hard to communicate sometimes the things that uh, you tell us in your word. Sometimes we just need to take our Bibles and a pen and a book and set aside an hour or two and just think things through, read your word, ask questions, dig around a little bit, ask why, ask what, ask who. And Father, as we do, we will come out of that with greater confidence in you, greater trust in your word, calm hearts, fearless minds, because we know this is your world and that you are guiding and directing and history is in your hands, and that while there is a conflict between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman, and though the seed of the woman may be bruised from time to time, there is coming a day, as Paul writes to Romans, where you will soon crush Satan under your feet. So, Father, help us to live with our eyes fixed on you, with our hearts filled with your word so that we may be able to face uncertain times confident that we can trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.